Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be with you at uh, your chapel service today, and I'm grateful to uh, those who invited me to come and share with you uh, this morning. And uh, it's also, of course, good to be here uh, with my brother Scott, who's uh, laboring with me, as you've heard, at Westminster. When I was first uh, asked to speak uh, at the chapel uh, about this theme of hope, and particularly a, a reason for the hope that we have, uh, and as it relates to my work as a church planter and as an apologist, I thought I would reflect on the nature of apologetics. And then I realized I had 20 minutes, so I thought I probably couldn't say anything Uh, that you don't already know in the space of 20 minutes. And therefore, what I want to do is say a little bit about our hope in terms of the overall calling that we have in terms of the kingdom of God and relate it to some of my experiences as a pastor and as an apologist. I've been defending the faith now, uh, sharing the faith for about 20 years. I know I look far too young and handsome to be that old. But uh, I began public speaking when uh, when I was 16 years of age. I remember that first address to about 200 young people at a sports centre in Swindon in Wiltshire in England. It was a scary moment. My father was a pastor, a church planter, a Pentecostal pastor, actually, Uh, and then missionaries. My parents today are still missionaries. They've been for 15 years in the Muslim world in Pakistan. And so my Christian experience as the son of a church planter in the middle of nowhere in southern England and as a son of a missionary, has been one to an extent of hope against hope. And during my last 10 years, particularly as an apologist and as a pastor, I've seen something of the hopelessness in the world, the sense of hopelessness, but also some of the despair and hopelessness that has invaded the church. At the same time, I've also seen the hope that comes to people when we are faithful in the declaration and the defense of the good news. That hope is kindled in the context of a faithful declaration and defense of the good news. It's kindled in the hearts of those who don't know him, and it's stirred, it's reawakened often in the hearts of Christians who have become despairing. If we have no hope, then we don't have a hope to share, do we? The psalm we've read is a psalm about the hope that there is in the God of our, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a hope for the nations. Now, if we don't have hope, 1 Peter 3.15, the Magna Carta of Christian apologetics, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you. If we are without hope ourselves, then obviously we have absolutely no hope to share with anybody else. Well, for three years I served as an associate pastor for a church plant in southwest London before uh, joining RZIM, as you've heard, as a vocational apologist. I worked for Ravi Zacharias for seven years, two years in Europe, five years here as the Canadian director, and uh, traveled extensively during that period. And during that time of travel in Canada, I did notice the sense of a declining hope within the church. And I was conscious, living near Toronto, of the churches closing in the city, becoming Hare Krishna centers and uh, condominium developments, mosques, and so forth. And as I talked to uh, denominational leaders, they'd be telling me the catalog of stories of church closures. And I began to feel and be increasingly burdened by the state of the church And when my third child was born, Isaac, nearly three years ago, 
my wife and I were beginning to feel that the time would come for us to step out from the work that we had been doing as, uh, as an itinerant apologist, and we were feeling increasingly led back to the church. And I was invited to look at a few pulpits, but we felt that God was asking us to plant a church in the city of Toronto. And a text that was our vision text, if you like, was Isaiah 61.4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former's devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. And so we believed, and I was convinced that God was calling us to seek to do a church plant and develop an institute for apologetics in the city. And as part of that, and I don't know why, I felt the conviction that we were to seek to recover an old church building in the city rather than seeing it sold for another condo development and to recover it for the kingdom of God. Looking back 18 months now, um, I can understand some people thinking and wondering myself now whether I was slightly mad, stepping out of uh, a good vocation uh, with no money, uh, no money to buy a building, just a belief and a conviction that God was calling us uh, to do this. And during that time, I still traveled for about uh, 10 months as an apologist, but at the same time was gathering a small handful of people who shared a vision for a church plant, praying that God would open a, a door, a facility in the city. And, uh, well, it was a catalog of failures, I have to confess to you, as I talked to various groups and sought to share a vision and see if something would happen. Uh, and at the moment, probably at my lowest point, a miracle happened, and God gave us a huge edifice in downtown Toronto, seats 650 people. Uh, and the reason was a very small group of people, a, a small group of West Indian women and one man, about eight of them, were praying, hope against hope, that God would do something in their church. The previous pastor had abandoned the place, said it's a lost cause. They rented out every square inch of the building, and we believed that God was going to identify a place for us in the city on the subway line. When I, cutting a very long story short, when I met this man, we both knew that this was the will and purpose of God. And uh, Westminster Chapel was born. Hope. Hope that began with a collection of about 35 people, and today, 18 months on, we have about 200 adherents, and we're rejoicing in baptisms and new conversions and so forth in the city and in this edifice that we believe we've reclaimed for the glory of God. I stuck a picture above my office door early on. It reads, hope is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. And as I was reading the, the uh, church plant gurus during this period, a lot of them tell you that the vast majority of church plants fail. But you know, there's always a risk and a danger in looking at the science of church planting or the technique for this or the strategy for that or the innovation for this, various fads and fashions that overtake the church, sometimes compromised, dressed up as originality. Because I think the key, and I have experienced that the key is in hope, it is in faithfulness, to God. And this has been my experience as a son of a pastor, as a pastor, and as an evangelist. Some of us crave originality and uh, creativity. You know, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, if you want to be original, tell the truth. Tell the truth. I think that is true. That true originality comes when we are truly faithful. Our hope is in Christ and in His Word. And so, 
as a church, we have a higher regard for the faithful preaching of the Word of God and the defense of the faith, and we've done so intentionally. I've just had about 15 skeptics on a course at the church. We just wrapped it up on Monday night. One commentator who I respect greatly says this, if the church is faltering or straying, the preaching is clearly at fault. If the church is lukewarm, sterile, or dead, the preaching is at fault. True preaching cannot leave men unconcerned. It will either arouse them to repentance and to godly action, or it will arouse them to ungodly hostility as they see themselves in the light of God's Word. It is hard to be faithful in our generation, particularly. I include myself in most of yours just about. It's hard when you face potentially unpopularity for faithfulness. But Scripture likens the faithful minister, the faithful declarer of God's Word, as a watchdog in Isaiah 56. And uh, watchdogs are supposed to bark a warning. False preaching in this passage is likened to dumb dogs that can't bark, or a dog that's lying down and can't arouse itself from its stupor to do anything about the situation. But hope is kindled, I believe, when we take the Word of God and we apply it faithfully in hope. And when we look at the context of much of the church today, we recognize that we are doing it in hope, and sometimes it appears that that is hope against hope. It is actually possible to be orthodox and learned and be able to display your learning through a depth of exegesis and yet leave people bored and stupefied by Uh, lack of application of the Word of God. It's material authority. It's possible to preach with evangelical fervor about one's experience and encourage other people to seek your experience and yet leave God's Word unapplied. And of course, we all know it's possible to be not quite orthodox and tell people that they need to release the biblical text from its cultural bondage and the prison of history and so forth and abstract the word of God and leave men and women with a Christianity that's unrecognizable. And of course, that has destroyed the church in our time. Our mainline denominations have been destroyed by such things. And then there's forms of evangelical radicalism that's crept back into the church where we're told, well, you can't really defend the faith because people aren't interested in truth. They don't really want to know about truth. The Bible's not about a declaration of truth primarily. What we need to do is recover a kind of monasticism and abandon our so-called rationalism. And oftentimes, in this context, hopelessness is dressed up as a romantic virtue, and then it's called the way of the cross. I'm just being honest and frank with you. You don't mean to waste your time at Tyndale Chapel, do you? At least I hope you don't. These are some of the forces that I think collectively have sapped the hope and vitality of God's people. And we are called in a context like this to declare God's word faithfully in hope. And as we do, we summon one another to hear and obey and apply and apply the word of God. One of the great dangers for us as students, it was a danger for me as a student, is abstractionism where we leave the Word of God essentially unapplied. We have a non-particular, non-concrete, a kind of pietized Word. And what happens is the Word of God starts to become treated as man's idea, rather than being the revelation of God 
the revelation of himself, that alone brings hope. Why do I say that? It's because I'm saying that I don't think hope is possible for our time in the church or anywhere else outside of a faithful declaration of the word of God. That's my experience as a church planter. That's my experience as an apologist. Hope isn't to be found anywhere else. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, 12 through 13, of the former condition of many of us. He says this, Remember you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Notice that he says that the, the place where there is hopelessness is in the world. Of course, we as God's people have a hope not just for heaven. We're told that our faith is hope in the world. It's a hope for history. It's a hope in the here and now. It's, as it were, not just pie in the sky when you die. It's steak on the plate while you wait. It's right here and now that we have hope. We're told the ungodly, though, are without hope. That's my experience of those who don't know Christ. Bishop Westcott, in his commentary on Ephesians on this passage, said this, There is a strange pathos in the combination. They were of necessity face to face with all the problems of nature and life. This is the Gentiles. But without him in whose wisdom and righteousness and love they could find rest and hope. The vast yet transitory order of the physical universe was for them, without its interpreter, an unsolved enigma. The Gentiles had, indeed, gods and many lords, but no God loving men whom men could love. The world for the humanist, for the pagan, is an anomaly. It's a statistical anomaly in the chaos. In a universe and a world of brute factuality, that's an uncreated, undefined, unrelated universe of unrelated particulars. For the naturalistic thinker, there is a sea of particulars like a billion beads with no thread to link them together, like a necklace. Just the random particulars of their experience. And for pantheistic faiths, nothingness is ultimate. Non-being is ultimate. So on the one hand, you have the naturalistic thinkers. On the other hand, you have the pantheistic thinkers. And in each case, they are undergirded by chaos. The chaos cults are the oldest outside of biblical faith, religion. Totemism, it's reflected in all humanism. That is, that out of the chaos there has come a gradation, a chain of being from all the same basic kind of stuff. All being is one, and in a chain of being we move from the inanimate to the gods. From this folly, the Gentile world needed a deliverer. A shepherd, if you like. It's interesting that many of the great states, the great monarchs and leaders of the great states in antiquity referred to themselves as the great shepherd. They considered themselves gods. And actually what lying behind uh, these uh, more modern expressions of world religions is the faith of the Persians, Zoroastrianism. Zoroaster means the deliverer, or actually Zarathustra, the deliverer, but Zoroaster the seed of the woman. This is where uh, all modern, out of uh, which all modern paganism has arisen, this quasi-historical figure of Zoroaster, who reappears in Nietzsche's thought, thus spake Zarathustra, the deliverer. 
delivering people from the illusion of God, announcing the death of God, and giving us a meaningless and even nihilistic reality. The Gentiles needed their deliverer, but they looked for it in all the wrong place until the, until the announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Paul declares to the Gentile world, especially seen in Acts chapter 17. Nietzsche's proto-existentialism wants to take us beyond good and evil and gives us and bequeaths to us hopelessness. And so actually what's ultimate, what is deliverance in paganism and humanism? Do you know what deliverance looks like in those faiths? It's death. In Buddhism, death is deliverance and salvation. In Hinduism, death is deliverance and salvation. And in humanistic uh, atheism, death in the end is deliverance from a meaningless, purposeless world. That's why suicide rates are what they are in Canada today. Second leading cause of death among young people aged 15 through 19 in Canada, suicide. Leading cause of death in men aged 30 through 34, suicide. Proverbs 8.36 tells us, all those, uh, He who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. We have a love affair with death in our culture today. That's why we're now discussing euthanasia and assisted suicide. And the Netherlands is introducing a new bill to have anybody who's 70 or older who feels like their life is complete go and switch yourself off. I was in the fall, I was in Ottawa of 2009 debating a philosophy professor there with his PhD from Princeton. He was a philosophy professor at University of Toronto. All the world's credentials on display. And my overriding impression of him was hopelessness. You know what he called the world in front of hundreds of students? A crappy place. That's what he called it. That's the equation, you see, without God, without hope in this world. And it's true across the board. Now, for those who would say that there's no room for apologetics today, well, in February last year, I debated the former Canadian Humanist of the Year, another philosophy professor called Dr. Christopher DiCarlo. 3,000 students came to the debate. Because they don't just want to know whether God exists, they want to know what kind of God exists. Over a thousand packed themselves into the University of St. Cloud in Minnesota a few weeks back when I was down there to debate another president of an atheist association because they sensed the hopelessness of their context. And they want to know, is there any hope? Put another way, a mark of ungodliness is hopelessness. And that's true in the church as much as it is in the world. Ungodliness is marked by hopelessness. But Paul tells us in Romans 5, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Even in the midst of difficulties and sufferings and trials and persecutions, we have a hope that will not put us to shame. And I can say to you that uh, whilst I've had challenging times and difficult times as a Christian apologist and faced intimidating situations, my hope has never left me in a place of shame. The hope that comes in Christ and through faithfulness to his word cannot leave us in a place of shame. But without hope, we can't live. You can't get out of bed without hope. You can't plan and work to any purpose without hope. Hopelessness is death. And when we see death in the churches, it's because we have lost hope. We've lost hope in Christ and in his word. It's been observed that people in the wilderness 
who get lost in the wilderness don't die so much of their incompetence, they die of shame. How did I get myself into this mess? Well, we have a hope that doesn't put us to shame, and Paul tells us that our pattern is Abraham in Romans 4, 17 through 18. He calls him the father of us all. He says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. This was hope, then, in history and for history. Imagine being called Abraham, which means the father of many nations, and you don't even have a son. And you have to bear that name around in antiquity, a name defined you. And you have to carry around the name of, which means something that contradicts what appears to be your existence. But he believed it and he hoped against hope. And that hope did not disappoint. This is the great theme of the gospel. Paul tells us in Timothy, he who is the, uh, of Christ, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in him and approachable light, in, who, in whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. It's in this God, who has eternal dominion over all things, that we have hope, but we have to believe that. One of the challenges of our time, then, is a, bizarrely a fear of victory. Some people have a fear of health, and they're always at the doctor. They go to the doctor for a chat because they don't want to be healthy. They fear responsibility that might come with health. Some of us fear obligations and responsibilities that might be ours if we walk in hope. But to an extent, it's easier to dress faithless up as a kind of realism and cynicism and despair as a kind of you know, realistic faith. But I think it's harder to hope. You know that great story, The Lord of the Rings, written by a man who was instrumental in seeing one of the great purveyors of hope, uh, C.S. Lewis, perhaps the greatest of the 20th century English apologists, British apologists, he was Irish, to faith, was J.R. Tolkien. And why is the story of The Lord of the Rings, if anything, but a story of hope against hope in a cosmic struggle? What did Gandalf call it? A fool's hope in these hobbits. A fool's hope. Maybe you look at this condition of the West today, in particular, and the life of the church, and say, oh, it's a fool's hope. But you know, hope was kindled when a little hobbit went up a tower and lit the beacons. Do you remember that great cinematic moment when the beacons are lit across the mountain range, and Gandalf says, hope is kindled. Well, we're told that we're a light that has been set upon a hill. We're a lamp. And hope and victory require full surrender to God. Sometimes we fear that full trust in God because we wonder what he might require of us. But we have to begin there with the lordship of Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of, of Christ and surrender to him because my reason is not to be in my thinking, in my apologetics, in my defense of the faith, sovereign over the realm of brute facts. It isn't. I'm a creature. He's the creator. He's the source of all definition. I discover meaning in the world and can only discover meaning because God has defined it and related all the particulars of my experience already. Without that, I have to invent a meaning and do what the atheist does, which is pretend the world has meanings. And it ends in hopelessness and despair. But we are given, and I close with this, a covenant of hope in Scripture. So much so that in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9, we're told that this hope is to a, a thousand generations. A thousand generations. 
of those who trust and fear, in the, fear the Lord. That there is hope for a thousand generations. Think about that, what that would mean if we had a long-term vision for our families, our wayward children, our wayward siblings, our churches, our universities, our seminaries, our grandchildren who are yet unborn. When we have hope for a thousand generations, the question becomes, how dare we not have hope? What gives you the right to be hopeless? You've got no right to be hopeless. If this is your God, if this is his word. Again, one of my favorite authors has written, our God is he who made heaven and earth and all things therein. He sent his plagues on Egypt and destroyed the power of Pharaoh. He parted the Red Sea asunder, delivered Israel out of Egypt to give them the promised land. He raised up kings and prophets, and he humbled nations in terms of his holy purpose. He raised up Jesus Christ from the dead and performed miracles through his servants, the apostles. This is our God, and he has not grown old, nor has his arm grown short. He is still in the resurrection business. The ages have not made him impotent or weak. The only hope on offer out there is the hope of arts and culture. That is, the hope of the elites. When I was working in southwest London as an evangelist and as a pastor, I was surrounded by these people. They only talk about themselves. I've never met such a narcissistic group of people in all of my life. My wife was trained as a ballet dancer, you see, and then worked and was at London uh, School of Speech and Drama. And so when I met her and we got engaged, I met all of her friends and shared the faith with many of them. Well, here you have the romantics of our time who think you can only experience meaning in high art and you need to be wise and discerning. You need to be of the cultured class of the elite to climb above the uncultivated mob this is the vision of the renaissance of course where you had this self-conscious recovery of paganism the dandy the gourmet the connoisseur and so you have a world of social climbers scouring the book reviews and the uh, uh, journals and the broadsheets to find out what true art really is and hope that in it you might find some meaning, and what you find is meaninglessness. But you know, we are told that we do have hope. Not for the elite alone, but for all men and women. Hope that is found in Jesus Christ as the people of the Jubilee, as announced by our Lord when he stood up to read from Isaiah 61, when he began his ministry. And if there was ever an announcement of hope, that was it. Deliverance and freedom in every area of life. Hope is kindled. The Apostle John says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. We have perhaps, in our own generation, the most biblically illiterate culture in 1,500 years, possibly. We are perhaps the closest to the early church in the West that we have been in 1,500 years. I see that as a day of great opportunity. There's two ways of looking at it, isn't there? Throwing up our hands and saying, well, hold the fort for I am coming, as the hymn writer once put it, and escaping the world and just hoping for the rapture and quick escape with Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins and the rest. (laughs) Or hope against hope in history for the church of the living God. Winston Churchill, the outbreak 
of World War II, who believed in providence for certain. I don't believe he was a Christian. When he was returned to the Admiralty from utter obscurity, said this, today I conquer or die. That, I believe, is the calling of the church for our time. Hope against hope. Amen.